Well, many are saying that the instant number one national best-selling book in awe is the message that we all need right now. Why not then delight family and friends and clients and colleagues and maybe even yourself this holiday season with a gift of the book in awe? It was released by Penguin Random House back in May of 2020. In Awe is an invitation to rediscover childlike wonder and unleash inspiration, meaning, and joy. You're probably asking the question, where do I learn more about this, John? Perfect. Visit JohnO'LearyInspires.com forward slash shop. Again, JohnO'LearyInspires.com forward slash shop. You'll receive, when you arrive there, uh, notice of our biggest sale of the year. Order in quantities of 10 or 20, 30, or even 75 for an opportunity of saving up to 50%. I want you to think about how much life has changed in the last 10 years. Professionally, technologically, politically, globally, in your relationships. Think about how much change you have experienced, how different life is. Well, for the last 10 consecutive years, Keeley Companies has been named a top workplace by St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Their most important assets are their people, also known as the Keeleyans, and are credited as the backbone of their business. You can learn more about the Keeley Company's dedication to their employees by visiting KeeleyCompanies.com. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, we have with us a remarkable guest. I think you're going to find Coot's story absolutely amazing. His journey is shocking. I'm going to give you a little bit of the background now, but allow Coot to share his own story with you in his own words. But listen to this. His mom and dad married in Africa. But his mother was from Japan and did not even speak the same language as his father, but they found love. He was eventually raised in Europe, made his way over to the United Kingdom before coming over to the United States. You're going to hear a story here shortly, not only of a guy who was somewhat transient as a child, as a young man, but a guy who modeled resiliency and courage and vision and selflessness, faithfulness and love. Coot Blackson has traveled the world. He is an incredible guy. You're going to be, I think, inspired by his broad knowledge. And one of the quotes that you're going to hear Coot share in a moment is this. Being aware that you are going to die opens up the fierce urgency to begin to really live. I'm going to say that again in the hopes that you will grab your journal and write this down now before it's too late. Here we go. Being aware, my friends, as we all should be, that we are going to die, we are, opens up the fierce urgency to begin really living today. What a great way to prepare ourselves to open up our journals and our minds and our hearts, get ready to rock and roll with our newest guest. His name is Coot Blackson. So my friends, 
without further ado, turn off your email, turn off Fox, CNN, MSNBC, whatever else might be pulling your attention in the background. Lean in fully to the Live Inspired Podcast and welcome to it, my friend, and now yours. His name is Coot Blackson. Coot, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It is great to be here. So uh, you just heard me ramble on about all the amazing things that you've done and the accomplishments that are part of your life. But if you had an opportunity to introduce yourself to a new friend and they asked you, Coot, what, what do you do, man? What do you do? H- how would you introduce yourself? That's an interesting question. What do I do? Because what I do is, is more intangible. You know, I mean, there's labels for it. I'm a transformational teacher, transformational coach, author, et cetera, et cetera. But if anything, what I do is I undo, I uncondition people. I, un- I unprogram people. I unteach people. I help people firstly become aware of their conditioning and the ways in which they've become conditioned because it's the conditioning that is preventing us from being able to freely choose and meet this moment in the now, fully present, fully awake, fully alive, fully aligned, fully on purpose. So I help people become aware of their conditioning, but also I create processes and experiences and seminars and uh, opportunities for people to peel the layers of those conditionings away so that they can really connect to who they really are authentically and live that freely in the world. So that's that's a nutshell. It's a worthy nutshell. And we're gonna spend the next 40 or so minutes trying to unpack the nutshell. Mm-hmm. And as I look at what you talked about, both what you do and how you help people undo, part of what people are hearing is your heart. They're hearing your journey. They're hearing the labels that were ascribed to you, how you've eventually set them aside. They're also hearing a beautiful accent. And they're probably trying to say, gosh, is it Alabama or New Jersey? And they're wrong up both accounts. (laughs) My friend, I I grew up with parents both from St. Louis who both were raised by parents from St. Louis who both had parents of those parents from St. Louis, Missouri. So not a whole lot of broadness in my upbringing and your upbringing and your parents and the parental structure and how they came together as one. Oh, wow. Yeah, man. It's it's miraculous. I think all of life is, but clearly how your mother and father ended up meeting is stunning. So without spending the entirety of the podcast talking about them and their meeting, would you just talk about where your mother was from first and how she ended up meeting your dad? Yeah, my mother's from Japan. My father's from Ghana. And my father's as Ghanaian as you can get. My mother's as Japanese as you can get. The story of how they met, just it gives you context for my life is, and I love telling the story because it's, it's, it's kind of different. Um, so when my father was born into a very poor family in Ghana, West Africa, in I think 1935, 1936 in that zone. Um, didn't have a lot. When he, wa- he would have these visions of a Japanese spiritual teacher, a Japanese guru that would come to him. Now, bear in mind, this is pre-internet, pre-anything, so he, he had no way to research any of these people. Uh, this man would come to him in his dreams and teach him about life and the cosmos and the nature of the universe and consciousness. And so my father would have these interesting spiritual experiences as a kid in Ghana, West Africa, as an eight, nine, 10, 10 year old teenager. Um, when he was 15, my father had a conversion on the street. He became a Christian, gave his life to, to God and started to heal people. 
blind people seeing, deaf people hearing. My first memories as a kid was literally seeing a crippled woman crawling on the floor. She picks up the sand that my father walks on, wipes it on her face and stands up. This was my father, Miracle Man of Africa, they called him, right? He was the advisor and spiritual teacher to the presidents and the kings and royalty and what have you, and uh, also millions of people. And so when, when my father was 15, he began healing. By the time he was 18, 19, started his first church. His church blew up. 300 churches later, hundreds of thousands of followers. I mean, a huge operation. He got married. His first wife died, had three kids. When he was 37, in Ghana, this is in the mid 70s, beginning 70s, he was in a store in Ghana, okay? Third world country at the time. A book falls off the shelf. He looks at the back of the book. He sees the face of this Japanese guru, this spiritual teacher who has been coming to him since he was eight years old. Didn't even know this guy was real. He's so shocked. He writes to this man. He says, you've been coming to me in my dreams since I was a kid. I didn't know you were a real person. This is, this is mind boggling. The man sends his son-in-law to meet my father in Ghana. The son-in-law so impressed with what my father has built, invites my father to go to Japan on a lecture tour with the guru himself. My father obviously accepts. Uh, my father also says to the son-in-law, look, I believe in the power of prayer. Uh, I lost my first wife. I'm ready to meet my new wife. I don't have a new wife, so please pray for me. The son-in-law says, absolutely. He goes back to Tokyo, Japan, gives a lecture, announces to the congregation that my father was coming to Japan to give a, a lecture tour with the teacher, the guru, okay? My, my mother, her parents belonged to the spiritual organization of the spiritual teacher. So this spiritual teacher was my mother's teacher, basically my mother's spiritual you know, guru, teacher, mentor. My mother is about 28, 29 at the time. You know, in Japan, if you're not mar married by 24, 25, you're old, your life yes. is finished. You know, it's like back in the day. And so uh, she's turned down several proposals. She's not feeling that anyone has a soulmate so far. So she says a prayer. At age 28, 29, she says, God, I will marry anyone you tell me to marry. It doesn't matter who it is. I will marry them. Just make it clear that this is your will. I surrender. Make it clear that this is my life partner, my soulmate, beyond the shadow of a doubt. I don't care if he's you know, tall, short, rich, poor, doesn't matter. I just want to meet the one for me. She's in the audience. She feels chills in her body. She says, this African man who is my husband, She's never met him. She speaks no English. My father speaks no Japanese. She just has this knowing. She trusts it. She writes a letter to my father. My father is in London. The letter gets rerouted. He's praying one day, meditating. God says, your wife's going to come to you tomorrow. This is in his meditation. Opens a letter. Says, this is my wife. Nothing romantic, John. Nothing romantic. Uh, he, so he writes back to her. And he says, would you be open to moving to Ghana, she, you know, she writes back and says, if it's God's will. Now, this is the first correspondence. If it's God's will, he writes back and says, yes, it's God's will, marry me. She writes back through a translator, her sister, I accept, to, I, I agree to marry you, it's done. So they agreed to get married. They hadn't spoken. They hadn't seen each, a, a photo of each other. It was just surrender and destiny and that was it. And so my father went to uh, Japan gave a lecture tour, met my mother for the first time. They had 45 minutes by themselves to kind of, I guess, make sure they agreed to get married. My, my father didn't have money by Japanese standards to throw 
a big wedding. And so again, he's, he's, he's wondering, okay, how do I throw a proper Japanese wedding, pay respect to the parents, take this Japanese bride to back to Ghana, I have to do it right. And so uh, six weeks off, six weeks uh, after he arrived to Japan, he finishes his lecture tour, he goes to his mailbox, there is an envelope, John, for $7,000 in US cash. All it says is this is for your wedding, no name, anonymous. My father had told no one about needing money, just a gift from the universe and that was it. And so they got married and literally left and couldn't speak on the honeymoon, couldn't speak for years, had me, and that was the beginning of their, their union. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> eloquent way to uh, talk about the union. Apparently, you don't need to use words sometimes to express love. Yeah. And you are living results of that love. And it's a remarkable, truly remarkable story. You mentioned a couple things in that, in that upbringing that I also found remarkable. You, you said my father grew a large church, which in and of itself is pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah. But you also said, and he was a miracle worker, you know, like the miracle worker of Africa. And then you went onward from there. That word miracle, when people hear that could frequently they cross mm -hmm. their arms and say, are these people crazy? Like, yeah. do they actually think that miracles still happen? That, that, that there is such a possibility in this world or any world of miracles. Tell me why you think miracles do happen. I saw miracles happen. Miracles defined as in sort of the, the, the beyond normal supernatural occurrences that can't right. be explained with the mind. So blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, my father would look at a person in the wheelchair and say, stand up. And they would say, but I haven't walked in 10 years and stand up and they would stand up. So honestly, I, uh, I grew up seeing this every, every day, every weekend, every Sunday. It was, I didn't think anything unusual about it, anything extraordinary about it. It was, I thought everyone's life was like this. As I got older, I finally got to have a conversation with my father in my early twenties. We didn't speak a lot before. And I finally asked him, like, what's the secret? How do you, how do you perform these miracles? Like, what? tell me the formula, you know, tell me the, the key. And, you know, in the West, there's so many healing modalities. There's Reiki, there's pranic healing, there's all these different fancy chakra healings and what have you, and you can learn how to heal people. And I thought he was going to give me a very sophisticated answer. And to his credit, my father simply said, I have nothing to do with these miracles. I have nothing to do with these healings. My father looked at me and he said, all I do, number one, is I just get myself out of the way. It's God that does the healing. It's, it's, it's spirit that does the healing. It's not me. All I do is I, what he said, he said something like, all I do is I get myself out of the way and I simply see the wholeness, the perfection of who someone really is. And if that person can uh, believe in that and align with that reality of their own perfection, many times the healing happens. And so I thought that was a really, you know, interesting and in a sense, humble explanation from the person who was performing, performing in quotation master miracle himself, you know? And so what I will say is many times people want to see miracles. They don't believe in miracles, but I would say that in many ways, if you really want to see a miracle, don't look for something extraordinary because I think miracles are hidden in plain sight every moment. Amen. If you really want to see a miracle, just look in the mirror 
You know, forget seeing a blind person. See, just look in the mirror and look at yourself. Literally inside of every one of us, there are trillions and trillions of cells, trillions and trillions of processes, you know, happening inside of us every second, every moment, just to be able to hear and see and touch and taste. You and I, we are living, breathing miracles. And so I think in many ways, we just don't bring our attention to that dimension of reality, that dimension of ourself, of the miracles that are already existing every single moment. To me, every single moment is a miracle, but we just, you know, we kind of take it for granted. Miracle is a shift in our attention and the willingness to see the magic and the sacred in, in the everyday moments. Was it Einstein that said, I'm going to butcher his quote, but the ability to see every moment as a miracle. There's a quote that Einstein talks about miracles. Yes. And so, you know, part of the work I do is helping people connect with themselves. Part of what I do is helping people free themselves from their past and forgive. And so I think whenever we're able to see who we are truly beyond our past, beyond our stories, whenever we're able to go beyond being or seeing ourselves as a victim to our circumstance, whenever we're able to forgive those that have wronged us and truly forgive, this is a miracle. Whenever we're able to have compassion and loving for ourselves and embrace ourselves in deep acceptance for who and what we are, this is a miracle. You began sharing that story by saying, uh, my father shared something with me in my early 20s. And then you said, almost as an aside, and he shared very little with me until that age. Yes. You didn't have much discourse. You didn't have any conversations. And, uh, and then you went onward from there. But it struck really? me as odd that uh, a miracle worker, a, a, a pastor, a great <laughs> man, clearly, in his own world has this little boy looking yeah. up to him who somehow he's not fully seen or at least not fully communicating with. Would you just talk about maybe how dad went a couple decades without having real conversations with you? It was interesting because I really looked up to my father. I mean, I loved him as, as just a, a kid would love his father. He was iconic to me. He was larger than life. This was my dad. I wanted his love, his acceptance, his approval, but we weren't close. He was gone a lot. And, and I think the space, because we didn't have the daily contact in terms of the small things in life. You know, my mother was there for the little things, just making me breakfast, making me dinner. We would chat, we would cry, we would talk. But my, my dad wasn't around, didn't come to my, my soccer games, didn't come to parent-teacher meetings. And there was a huge gap because he was always on a path of his mission that was really about serving masses of people. Nothing wrong with that, but I really do feel in that he missed the connection with mm. me as a son, the small things, the mundane things. And I, and, I, and I actually think that we're moving into a new generation where it doesn't have to be either or anymore, that I think it's really about integrating the sacred and the mundane together. And so uh, I grew up without my father, you know, and I felt that absence deeply in my heart, even though I loved him profoundly, you know, also, uh, he was a very old school patriarchal, my way or my way. So there wasn't so much closeness and conversation. Yeah. And, and so, and then him and my mother had their own challenges culturally and on a, on a personality level, a really tough character, you know, yes. and I grew up with a lot of distance. 
to a degree, I think on a human level, some resentment because I just felt, I felt and internalized that he didn't love me. He didn't care about me on a human level. I knew he loved me, but on a human level, he didn't make time for me. He didn't care for me. He didn't show up for me. He wasn't there for me. Didn't understand me. You know, my father announced the congregation when I was 14. My son is taking over my ministry. Now, you would think that you would have a conversation with your son about such an important thing. My son is taking over. He's going to be the next thing. Announced on stage, John, on stage. I'm, I look at my mother. She looks at me. She had no idea. I have no idea. I started speaking in, in my father's audiences when I was age eight. So he just announces. And inside, I was fuming. I yes. felt betrayed. I felt angry. I felt abandoned, you know, but also I couldn't say anything to him because he was my father and I couldn't say anything to him because I was afraid of breaking his heart. I couldn't say anything to him because I didn't want to betray him. And, and, I, I, and I couldn't say anything because I thought if I really dared to speak my truth, I would lose his love. I, I, we, would, we already didn't have a deep connection, so I'd lose whatever connection we had. And so I didn't say anything for years. And so that also internally, the distance between us grew even more. And, and it took me about four years to muster the courage to finally have a courageous conversation with him. When I was 18, I looked into my future and I saw that I could follow the expected path for my life and be who he wanted me to be and who everyone else wanted me to be. But I saw that age 20, age 30, age 40, age 50, age 60, if I didn't have myself, if I didn't have my truth, if I didn't have my own soul, my own integrity, no matter how successful I became, what kind of success is that? And that you can't truly be fulfilled and happy being someone, someone that you're not or living someone else's life. And so I had to, life. I had well, to, in the church, you know, all too well, the story of the prodigal son and how one of yeah. the boys takes the father's inheritance and runs away. And in some regards you do, yeah. you leave, you eventually get the green card. That story in and of itself is stunning. It's another little <laughs> miracle, but it is a miracle story. You get the green card, you come to LA the place where all dreams come true and man, you struggle. <laughs> it was hard. It was, I mean, you know, struggle I with language and fitting in and jobs, and everything, everything. Away from the family for the first time. Why That's not hard. come home? Why didn't you just say, gosh, this is far harder than I expected. I'm coming back. It was way more difficult than I expected because no one prepared me for life. No one prepared me to make money. No one prepared me to survive. No one, no, I didn't have the guidance and the backing of anything. And so I, I was furious and resentful and angry at my father for many, 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 many years. And when I finally got to LA, I had $800, I won a green card living the dream on $800 in a tiny two, 300 square foot apartment. And I called my mother up the first day crying. And she said, you can do it. You know, you can do, I believe in you, you can do it. And I dried my tears and I kept going. I felt John, that there was something pushing me. I felt that there was something, my soul was guiding me. My soul was moving me in a direction. I had no idea where I was going, but it was bigger than me. And I felt a deeper impulse saying, go in this direction. I wanted to go into the self-help field. I wanted to be write books. I wanted to speak. I had dreams and visions since I was a kid. And so something beyond myself was pushing and nudging and guiding me that it, it, it wouldn't let me go back. And as different, here's the thing, as difficult as it was now, bear in mind, I had no money. I was stealing food from the supermarket just to eat, like bread, stealing from the supermarket. I'm ashamed of it, but it, it's what was happening. I was literally pulling off a uh, um, to sleep in my apartment. I pulled a mattress 
out of the trash to just sleep on for thinking this is great. But the thing is, I was happy. Yeah. I was at peace because I felt like I was on course. I felt like I was on path. I felt like I was living and following my deepest truth. And so I felt an internal peace that I wasn't compromising myself in any way. That gave me the peace to keep going. And so to be honest, I didn't feel like I had a choice. That was the thing. I didn't feel like I had a choice. My soul didn't give me a choice. There was no alternative. And also just on an ego level, I, I knew my dad was just waiting for me to come back to prove me wrong. And so I didn't have a choice on that level. But the bigger thing was it, it wasn't an option. It's interesting. I think the deeper you go spiritually, the less choice you have, the freer you actually are. You know, the, the more you are living in your ego, what I want, the more choice you appear to have on the surface. I can do what I want. I can do this, this, and this. The less free you are. And, and, and so it's an interesting thing because at a certain moment of surrender, you could say like your will and thy will and my will start becoming one. And what I felt in that moment was that there was there was no alternative. And, and, and so that moved me forward. You know, I thought, to be honest, I felt a vision from a very young age. I was sneaking to my father's church in the middle of the night. And my, my bedroom was so tiny, but my dreams were so big. And I sneak into my father's church. The lights were off. Imagine a church of like 2,000 chairs. And in the darkness, 11 years old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, I would give seminars to the empty chairs imagining myself, literally imagining myself inspiring souls from around the world. So I had this burning dream and desire that was beyond me that carried me forward. You know, and, I, and I felt like I had to fulfill that destiny. Kurt, we could go in 1,100 different directions right now. <laughs> and one thing I want to call forward is you mentioned this idea of how sometimes restriction can provide greater freedom. Yeah. And I, I think the many who aren't spiritual and many who push back against religion do so in part because one, it's hard to prove out. So they just say, well, then clearly can't be true. And also because they think it's confining. Yeah. They think these rules take away their freedom when in fact it is those rules that provide the freedom. When my will comes toward thy will, yeah. gosh, man, there's freedom there. You also talked about surrender which I want to go into yes. next. But yes. I, before we talk about surrender, I think one of the places where you learned surrender was in India. You had a near-death experience that um, shaped your life. I think death can bring us forward to what matters most in life. And so yeah. would, you, would you share a little bit of the experience, but even more than the experience, what did you learn from that experience? I've been to India, wow, maybe 30 times in my life, I realized. And, but on one of those journeys... It's interesting because every time I seem to go to India, there's usually a death moment that happens. <laughs> That's, the, I think, the gift of India, the medicine of <laughs> India. One of those times I was by myself. I think this is the time you're referring to, but I was, I was in the back of a car. The, my driver was driving me. We were driving probably eight hours through the plains of India in the middle of nowhere. And I remember I woke up and I just, I, I, I'm seeing the car going 100 miles an hour, if not more. Uh, oncoming truck coming towards us at breakneck speed 
and I'm seeing the driver doesn't slow down, no one's slowing down, all of a sudden it's pretty inevitable, we're going to crash into each other. Everything went into slow motion for me in that moment. Everything slowed down, my entire life just flashed in front of me in that moment. My regrets, my parents, my loved ones, my girlfriend, you know, all, all, all of my pain, all of my hurt, all of the things I did that I judged myself for doing wrong, everything, and it was slow motion. And I, I remember going, oh, I guess th this is how it ends, huh? This is, this is the moment. And a great calm came over me and I closed my eyes literally for that moment, but it was a split second. And the car started spinning because I realized he swerved. The car started to spin and all of a sudden it was spinning around off the side of the road. It kept spinning and then it stopped, came to a screeching stop. And it happened so fast, I opened my eyes and I was disoriented. I thought, well, this isn't what the, the, the afterlife looks like. I think I'm still here. <laughs> you know, am I in heaven? Am I in, am I in heaven? Am I in hell? Where am I? And, and uh, I realized I was still alive and I thought, my God, I was so relieved. And it, it was a really profound moment for me of making peace with death. And I realized, in that moment that I'd been so afraid of dying. I'd been so afraid of dying and avoiding dying and the fear of dying that also in that I was afraid of living, that there was so much I was holding back, so much I wasn't giving, so much I wasn't sharing, so much I, was, I, I wasn't loving because I, I was afraid of getting hurt. I was afraid of rejection. I was afraid of failure. I was, and something shifted for me in that moment because I realized number one, we're all going to die. We're, we are all going to that. All the great ones I respect, Mandela, Mother Teresa, Bob Marley, Bruce Lee, Muhammad Ali, you know, David Bowie, uh, Martin Luther King, they all died. I'm going to die. It is guaranteed. We can do whatever we want, but it's happening. And when I really felt that moment, it just hit me, you know, it, it, it brought everything into a deeper clarity and reality. And I thought, how do I want to die? Do I want to die holding back? Do I want to die with my gifts held inside? Do I want to die playing it safe? Do I want to die with so much unsaid, unexpressed, ungiven? And, and why am I just playing it so safe? It was like a paradigm shift occurred inside of me. I said, at least if death comes, I want to be ready. I want to be able to throw my arms up and say, take me. I, I, there's nothing I'm holding on to. There's nothing I'm holding back. And so meeting death in that way gave me a profound reality check and a deeper courage to take the risks in life and go for it because I also saw how short this thing could be, how short life actually is, but how shorter it could be. It, it lit a fire in my heart even mm. more deeply. You know, it, it's, when I was on Larry King, who was one of my heroes, by the way, I used to watch Larry King uh, when I was a kid because didn't have very much. So one of the ways I would escape my reality was I'd watch Larry King interview these amazing people. And when I got the chance to be on with him, I thought he was going to be easy with me, you know, and he was, he just kept chopping me into pieces and, and I had to step up my game. And he said, uh, what happens when we die? I'm thinking to myself, I mean, I've never died. I'm not quite sure. But I realized it's not just what happens when we die. It's really about how are we going to live this moment right now? Because I think when we don't love fully and give fully and serve fully, we're already dying while we're alive.
you know? And, and so death gave me a deeper access to living fully present authentically while I'm here. Mm. It was a profound moment. There's a quote that I wrote down. I, I believe it came from your book. It may have come from one of your presentations and it speaks directly to what you just said. And it is this, being aware that you are going to die opens you up to the fierce urgency to begin yeah. to truly live. Yeah, that's what a lot of our colleagues uh, around this office and the clients that we serve around the world are dealing with some challenges right now, individually and collectively. And so I just thought I'd bring up some of the things that have been pushed forward in front of us as John, we're dealing with this. And then maybe for you to give us some ideas on how we can better manage these challenges. Mm -hmm. Okay. So cool. number one on the list, we hear it from <laughs> every individual, every organization, every client, anxiety. Tons and tons of the folks out there listening to my voice and yours today are just struggling, massively drowning in the pit of anxiety. So for those of us wrestling today with anxiety, Coot, how do we begin to navigate those waters? It's delicate because I don't think there is a cookie cutter you know, formula for, for any of it. And I think everyone is, is unique with their own programming, conditioning, nervous system background. But just as a kind of overarching uh, arrow pointing people in, in a direction. I think many times anxiety is a function of not being in the present moment. Many times anxiety is a function on projecting into the future about all of the things that you need to do in the future, all mm -hmm. the things that you need to take in the future and seeing all of these things all at once and becoming overwhelmed and feeling anxious, which also then starts focusing us as we're projecting into the future, we create a negative future fantasy about things that may or may not happen. And we start feeling anxious and stressed about things that haven't quite happened yet. And so many times, if you're in a moment of anxiety, I think one thing you can begin to do is just take a moment to check where your attention is. Like, and take a moment to breathe because in those moments, we're often not aware of where our attention is. But if you really become present in the moment, you'll often see that your attention has gone somewhere, spinning a, fact, uh, uh, a scenario about things in the future, all the things you have to do, all the things that might go wrong, or, and many, many of the time, all the things that aren't actually in your control. And we start stressing about things that we can't control rather than becoming aware, focusing on our attention, tuning into your body and taking a deep breath and then asking yourself, okay, what is in my control? Like, what actions can I take in this moment right now? Because the moments that we spend spinning in the future, staying anxious are moments that we're not empowered. Also, even reframing a situation can be very helpful because sometimes the way we look at the situation creates stress. As we're seeing ourselves as a victim, we're seeing the negative, but asking ourselves, what's the opportunity in this situation? The reframe of the situation can shift our reality of the situation and how we perceive it. And then as you focus on the actions you can take, chunking things down so that you don't feel so overwhelmed in small actionable steps. A lot of our friends out there talk about the speed of change. They're talking about the new normal or the now normal. They're talking about virtual fatigue and everything else going on around. And as they summarize the emotion they feel most frequently, it's exhausted. They're just, just, wiped out, burned out, exhausted. Yeah. So for those of us right now, whether we are stay-at-home parents or we are working two jobs to support the family, whether we're hearing my voice in the US or around the world, for those exhausted today, Coot, what's the recommendation for them? 
You know, I think the exhaustion is, I don't see any of these things as bad. I think feelings are simply a signal. Feelings are our friend. Feelings are a messenger that there's some part of us that is needing our attention. So even exhaustion, you can override it or see it as an enemy or see it as, huh, what is the message that this exhaustion is seeing? So I think if we can reframe our relationship with the feelings, what we tend to do, the challenge is what we tend to do is we feel exhausted and we override it. We get more caffeine, we, we, we pump ourselves up with more adrenaline and we override it. Then what happens? We get more adrenal fatigue, we get more exhausted, we get more exhausted, we get more exhausted and then we crash versus saying, hmm, this exhaustion, I'm feeling tired. Even before exhaustion, there's probably a, a, a feeling of tiredness. Then it gets to exhaustion. But this exhaustion is trying to tell me something. Probably, what is it trying to tell me? Probably that some part of me is needing some rest. And so I think it's important that we start listening to our bodies and not let it even get to the point of exhaustion. Listening to our bodies and giving ourselves rest, giving ourselves the appropriate sleep, giving ourselves moments of rest in our day, recharging ourselves. You know, practically, I think one of the great ways to recharge ourselves is in nature, being in nature, walking barefoot in nature, being around trees, you know, taking a hike, uh, taking a swim in the ocean can be very rejuvenating. Finding time to sit still, even if it's for five, 10 minutes and breathe and tune into your body and do nothing. Sometimes, sometimes doing nothing is everything. Sometimes slowing down is the way to actually speed up. Exhaustion is just a signal. When we don't pay attention to that is when we set ourselves up for more suffering. Listen to your body. One way is breathing. One way is just scanning your body through the day and asking yourself and your body, what do I need right now? You know, there's a communication with the mind and the body. What does my body need right now? Ah, maybe it needs more water, filling ourselves with healthy nutrition and water. And I think one of the things for me too, that really helps is filling yourself spiritually. For me, through meditation, prayer, meditation, because I think when we do that as well, that, that that's not uh, replacing sleep and the things I've just said, the filling ourselves spiritually. Sometimes you can do all the right things physically, but if you're not filling yourself spiritually, then I find you're just working with your own willpower and ego power, which can be exhausting. But when we truly connect to the deeper dimension of ourselves, when we connect to the spirit, when we connect to that divine part of ourselves, when we connect to our soul, and we surrender, then what I found in that surrender, we, we get ourselves out of the way. We're no longer fueling ourselves just without ego uh, fuel, our ego power, but we're allowing grace and God to work through us and flow through us. And now we're fueled in a different way. Final question in this line of questioning is around the pandemic we all face. And, and the one I'm referencing here is actually not related to COVID. We are in the midst of a global pandemic of isolation and loneliness, and it's been going on long, far longer than COVID-19, and it yeah. unfortunately will remain long after COVID-19 is erased from the face of the earth. Cigna did a national study here in the United States that found 66% of Americans identify as being lonely, and this was before 2020. This was before COVID. This was back in 2018, and those numbers have intensified. They've gotten worse. So one of the comments we hear from many of the clients that we serve is our folks and me, we're just lonely. 
we don't we don't have that individual that group to turn into to really lean into these days so for those of us right now could those of us single and those of us in marriages those of us employed and unemployed who feel lonely right now what encouragement might you give us it's it's delicate you know especially the last couple of years with, with the isolation um the encouragement i would say on on some practical levels i would say we have to be even more intentional in cultivating, creating community like never before, <laughs> as much as possible, intentional, not just like let it happen, but actually intentional to say, who do I wanna be around? What kind of community do I wanna create? And actually go out and create it. That might mean when possible, being around people that inspire us, that uplift us, when not possible physically, uh, as it's been for many of us the last year, on Zoom, on WhatsApp groups, Zoom, creating that community online together, being a part of, tri of a tribe or tribes that really gets you and sees you, but being intentional about it, not just waiting for that to happen. And so when that commitment's there, then we go out and create it. So that, that's one thing I would say. In terms of loneliness, it's interesting. This might rub a few people, but I'll say it. I think loneliness is an internal state of being that is different than being alone. Amen. And loneliness, if I can say, at least what I found for myself is you can be alone, but not feel lonely. But when you're lonely, it's usually when I found I have been disconnected from myself, disconnected from my truth, disconnected from my soul, disconnected from God, disconnected from that infinite divine connection. It, it, it's interesting because even on a spiritual level, I, I, I'll just say it, John, I, I think God or whatever people believe, God is calling us closer to it in this time and it's forcing us. And, and through the pandemic, it's kind of closed certain doors where we used to go for some sort of, you know, uh, satiation and it's forced us to go inward and inward to connect more deeply with God. We're not alone. The sun, the stars, the moon, everything is, is like life is serving us in every moment just to exist. And I think when we start feeling that, we realize, wait a second, maybe I'm not as alone as I thought when I'm in my own ego separation. Man, we could, we could spend at least another full podcast talking <laughs> at greater length about loneliness. Yeah, yeah. And, and how it leads to things, you know, last week, the national headline was that some passenger walked over to a flight attendant and punched her twice in the face. And you're like, how, how do people get this angry? And I think it's because we go through life so wildly busy that we don't pause long enough to recognize the things that matter, the things that don't, how yeah. truly interconnected we all are, how yeah. good life is, how good and big God is. And the truth that in spite of our current challenges, the best days are in front of us. And, and if your life is only looking down at your cell phone, realizing how politically broken we all are, well, yeah. it should come as no surprise when we act out, when we yeah. act out. And so could I, I just thank you for your, your candor. You, 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 whether you're talking about loneliness or anxiety or despair or growing up or walking away from your father's church and stepping forward in LA and everything about the journey really is about letting go surrendering. So I'm, I'm going to wrap up here in a moment with this quote from you. Life itself is ultimately a process of surrender. 
Yes, it is. Life itself is ultimately a process of surrender. Talk about that. Look, whether you're a drug dealer, whether you're Mother Teresa, whether you're the Pope, whether you're Oprah, Bill Gates, the fact is being born, life is the process of surrender. There is so much that you can't control. And I think 2020 showed us we're not as in control as we thought as human beings. We thought we were, but we're really not as, as in control of this greater process that is happening. Um, here we are born, we start aging, you know, gray hairs, things happen, the body falls apart, 80, 90. It, it, so to me, it's not about will you surrender? It, it's about how will you participate in the process? Because we're being surrendered, whether we like it or not. Stuff happens, things happen. You know, the hair falls out. Just It's just life. And so will you resist or will you embrace the change? Will you resist or will you learn the lessons? Will you resist or will you let go? And, and so I think that's part of the process. People tend to think that surrender is weak. People tend to think that if you surrender... It's a, like a misconception in our culture, you know, and I really want people to reframe what surrender is. People think if you surrender, it's weak, it's passive, you're going to be a doormat, taken advantage of, that you won't manifest your goals, dreams, or desires. You're going to get less. I'm actually saying if you surrender, what if you got more? And so to surrender is not about passivity or laziness. It's an active principle, a full participation with the process of life as it's happening. For true surrender is letting go of control or the idea of control that we thought that we had. True surrender is when we stop trying to force and manipulate life to fit our limited ego's concept of how we think life should be in this little box. True surrender is um, get letting go of the idea of who we think we should be and the life that we think we should be living so that we can be op open, truly open to the deeper impulse and the deeper expression of what life, what God is seeking to express to us. And many times I have found when you surrender, you get more, more joy, more love, more, more than you could have actually goal set or planned for yourself. So I always say what life can do through you is more than anything you can do on your own. And to me, that is the power and the magic of surrender that's possible. Well, you heard it from Kublaxon that, that it might be time in your life, my friends, to raise high and proudly the white flag of surrender. It's not weakness. It's not the same as quitting. It takes an amazing amount of strength, but ultimately it sets you free. And yes. this has been a blast, man. It's, it's been about the fastest podcast that I can remember, but we have seven questions that tether all of our beautiful guests together. So we're going to sprint through these seven questions. They okay. always say the same one. Here we go, my friends. What for you has been the most impactful or best book you've ever read? Man, this, this is a tough question. Uh, there's a book that I'll say is I Am That by an Indian teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj. It was very impactful for me. Still I, mean, is. I, have, I haven't read it. What is I Am That about ultimately? I Am That is really a, an inquiry into who we really are and getting people to question their own conditioning and identity and thoughts and beliefs. And it's really profound because through that, I think the most important question we can ask ourselves and experience the understanding of is who am I? Who am I really? And I think we've been so conditioned to believe that I am my skin color, I am my age, I am my story, I am my experience, I am this, I am that. And at the deepest level, 
we're none of it. We are pure essence, consciousness, divine yeah. beings, you know? And, and so uh, that the book is really a deep exploration of what we really are, you know? It's very powerful, really and, powerful. You know, when, when I go into a conversation, I always have about 15 hours worth of questions to ask. And one of them was going to be around labels. Because, you know, you know, you clearly had at some point in your life the, the freedom to set aside the labels. And like, what a yeah. gift it is to know that you are so much more than that. Yeah. So much more than that. So Kut, second question is, what what is one positive characteristic that you possessed as a little boy growing up in Ghana that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think I was a very fun-loving kid. And and I would love to get to, to, to exhibit even more of that fun in my life, you know, that, that playful fun. If your home, condo, apartment caught fire and all your loved ones, all your animals are safely outside now and you had an opportunity to run back in and grab one item, what's the one thing you would come racing back outside with? You know, it's, you know what's interesting? I, I've really gotten my life to a minimal standpoint. And, and so when I'm, I'm looking around where I'm at now, it's not that, you know, I'm just going to say the first thing I take my, I take my, I have three passports, UK passport, Ghanaian passport, US passport. I take my passports because, <laughs> because then I have the freedom to travel anywhere. Because to be honest, the books, the TV, the chairs, none of that means very, this stuff doesn't mean that much to me. You know, in the United States, some people are impressed when you have a passport. If you have two passports, you're legit. <laughs> You start walking around three passports. You are in a different league than most of the guys. <laughs> so that, that is impressive. You come out with that cell phone and those three passports, and uh, I will take you out for a couple of days. Then we're good to go. We're good to go. If you could sit on a bench on a perfect day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased. Oh, that's easy. That's easy. Uh, Tell me. My mother, honestly. Uh, she was the most uh, purest soul I've ever met in my whole life. She was the one that inspired the book, Magic of Surrender, um, because she was the most surrendered person. You know, when the di doctors diagnosed her with stomach cancer and they said, you have maybe a few days, weeks, months to live, I asked my mother, first thing I said, are you afraid? And she said, no, I'm not afraid because I know that I'm not just this body, that this body is a temporary vehicle for my soul and I will always be with you. I will not die even though this body dies. And it hit me because anyone can be confident when they're healthy, but when you know you're dying, it's another thing. And she said that to me with such peace in her eyes. And she realized who she was, you know, and she was not afraid of this physical body falling away because she knew what she was, was eternal. And then I said to her, mom, um, what can I do for you in your final days? You know, I'm tears down, streaming down my face. What can I do? Can I buy you this, take you here, go here? Like, what do you need? And she said, there's nothing I need or want. She said, all I really want is what God wants for my life. And I realized that she was truly surrendered, that she was like an enlightened being, but I didn't realize it because she was just my mom, but she was truly awake to what she was and the deeper reality. She wasn't attached to living. She wasn't attached to dying. She was just whatever God wants for my life. I'm, I'm, I'm available to that. And she lived that in her own powerful, but gentle and quiet way. And so my only regret in life, John, honestly, and I've done a lot of things, the, the only regret I have, and I have one, 
is not spending more time with my mother. I thought I was going to have more time with this woman. There were so many more things I wanted to do and go and experience, but I thought I have time and I was so busy impacting people and living life and speaking that I just didn't have time to sit with her. And the last year of her life was the best year of my life because I got to sit with her for eight hours during chemo session and just talk about nothing. And I cried because I realized, why did I wait until she was going to do this, you know? Why, why did I wait? And, and so it, it became a beautiful moment because now I think what I would give to be able to just sit on the bench and just have a conversation about nothing. Mm. I'd give it all just to talk about nothing and watch her make a cup of tea. It used to frustrate me to see her making tea because she would take forever. What I would give now to see her taking forever making a cup of tea and, story. and waste time with my mom, that would be, Man, you be moved, everything. You moved me to tears over here. My mom is one of our listeners. So mom, uh, I'm taking you out soon for a cup of tea. We're going to sit on a bench and do nothing. So uh, when Good that happens, can thank Hoot for... Uh, for reminding me of what matters and what doesn't. Thank you. Beautiful advice. Speaking of advice, what is the best advice that your mother, your father, or any other teacher in your life ever, ever provided you? So the best advice you have ever received is? I'm going to say the first thing, God is in control. That's it. God is in control. Let go. Let go. Let God. Could, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? So look back a couple decades now. What, what would you tell yourself? Wow. If I look back at 20-year-old, I would say take more risks. Take more risks. Be bold. You know, don't be afraid to fall down more and risk more and fail more and, and try more and bite off more than you can chew. Like really take more risks. You know, I think at 20, I was taking risks, but in a, in a certain way, I was playing a little safe and didn't want, it's like, screw it. It, it. None of it matters. You know, none of it matters. Everything matters, but take more risks and even more go for it. That's what I would really say. Good blacks and a man who I think did go for it and certainly does go for it and reminds the rest of us to, uh, to do likewise, to surrender and, uh, and say yes to life. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Mm. How would you like your one sentence to read? He loved fully and fulfilled his soul's purpose. Something like that. You know, he loved fully, fulfilled his soul's purpose. Okay, Blacks, and you, without a doubt, man, did indeed and do indeed love fully. You are fulfilling God's potential for your soul, for your life. And I want to thank you for not only spending an hour today with us on the Live Inspired channel, but for reminding our listeners that sometimes to step forward, they've got to slow down. And sometimes to, uh, to do the things that matter most, you've got to stop doing the things at all and just completely be. It was a great conversation on paradoxically what a successful life looks like and what it doesn't. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My friends, that is Coop Blackson. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day. Yes, it is live inspired. Well, my friends, I want to thank Coop Laxon for joining us this time on the Live Inspired podcast. 
And I want to thank each of you today for tuning in and listening in and then living out the messages shared within the Live Inspired podcast. As we enter the final month together of 2021, a year for so many of us that has been difficult and challenging and taxing and full of anxiety, we finish strong together. We move into this holiday season, this Advent season, this Christmas season, this wrap-up of 2021, and the promise of 2022, as convicted as ever that the best days are in front of us. So how shall we advance toward those days? Well, maybe this quote from Kuplaxen reminds us of the importance of this moment more than anything else he shared today. One more time. Here it comes. Friends, live inspired family and community and listeners, being aware that you are going to die opens up the fierce urgency to begin to really live. My friends, we are not bound permanently for this side of eternity. This is just a a stop along the journey. I think eternity awaits us. Recognizing that this is just a moment in time allows us to let go of some of the uncertainty, some of the anxiety, some of the pettiness, some of the cynicism, to allow us to uncross our arms, open up our hearts, lift up our eyes, and step boldly into the promise of this holiday, this Christmas season. The best is yet to come. But rather than waiting for it, why not step into the fierce urgency to begin to really live that right now? If you would like a friend along the way or you want to learn a little bit more about what we do here at Live Inspired, cruise on over to learn more right now at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. I'll give it to you one more time. JohnO'LearyInspires.com. If you'd like to check out the podcast forward slash podcast. So my friends, for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. This is your day. Embrace the fierce urgency of it and live inspired. Many are saying that the instant number one national best-selling book, In Awe, is the message that we all need right now. Why not then delight family and friends and clients and colleagues and maybe even yourself this holiday season with a gift of the book, In Awe? It was released by Penguin Random House back in May of 2020. In Awe is an invitation to rediscover childlike wonder and unleash inspiration, meaning, and joy. You're probably asking the question, where do I learn more about this, John? Perfect. Visit JohnO'LearyInspires.com forward slash shop. Again, JohnO'LearyInspires.com forward slash shop. You'll receive, when you arrive there, uh, notice of our biggest sale of the year. Order in quantities of 10 or 20, 30, or even 75 for an opportunity of saving up to 50%. My hometown of St. Louis is an awesome baseball town. For those of you who know my story, you know that story. You know the impact of the St. Louis Cardinals and Jack Buck and baseball on my life. You also know it's a phenomenal hockey town. And for those who have read the book On Fire or know the impact of the St. Louis Blues, not only in this community, but also on a little boy named John O'Leary, you know that it's a hockey town as well. 
what you may not know is the town keeps expanding. We are now, drumroll please, a soccer town as well. That's right. We've been a soccer town for a while, but now it's official with MLS moving to St. Louis. And our friends at Keeley Companies are proud construction partners in building the new stadium, downtown St. Louis, focusing on applying their extensive building experience, their commitment to developing, and then implementing a successful workforce development with diversity inclusion. Keeley Companies CEO and my friend Rusty Keeley said this, we are honored to be part of the project of creating a positive legacy in St. Louis. Learn more about that project and other projects going on at Keeley Companies by visiting them right now online at keeleycompanies.com.